to me, the greatest achievements are emerging where the learning design is the strongest. And you're going to see that over and over again. And I think that that student experience and the, the continuity of that, um, you know, I, I really believe that's what's going to be the selling point. And that's what people are going to consume. That's what they're going to buy. Learners are consumers. And if you look at what they're buying and where they're spending their money and the shifts that it follow, just follow that trend and you'll see. But it's not going to be um, necessarily after a name brand because what's happening is the student experience online is very much following a new round of brands that are notorious for great online learning. Welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Dr. Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with leading-edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious You is a production of CELIP, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about CELIP, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash Chalip. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ingenious You. I'm delighted to be joined today by Lori Polito, who serves as Chief Executive Officer of Ease Learning. And let me tell you just a little bit about her. Uh, Lori founded the company Ease Learning in 2003. The company is focused on providing learning design services and technology solutions that transform the learning, ex the learner experience. And boy, is that needed today more than ever. Um, her company specifically focuses on innovative learning design, customer-friendly help desk services, and cutting-edge learner analytics. In her capacity as CEO, she works closely with a wide range of higher ed institutions, corporate entities, and nonprofit organizations to help develop and deliver on their e-learning, face-to-face training, and blended learning. So Lori, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to Ingenious U. Thank you, Melissa. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I'd like to start out as I do each episode by asking you about your professional journey. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey, uh, the work you're now doing at Ease Learning and where the inspiration to start your company came from? You know, every time somebody asks me that question, I kind of laugh because it, it implies such intention. <laughs> um, and I have to say, um, the only thing that was intentional about this journey for, for me personally is that I came at it as an educator. Mm. And it actually took me years to figure out that I wasn't just educating clients, I was actually selling things. <laughs> and, you know, educating is a form of business development. And I never realized I was the salesperson for the company. Um, I just thought I was teaching people what I know and what I'm passionate about. And that energy kind of was synergetic with building a team of, of like-minded people who had the same goal and the same focus. Uh, and I think we are all at Ease Learning still educators first and foremost, and that's the driving force behind our work. And it has a certain authenticity to it because of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we 
we really think about the learning experiences that we create and they have a ton of intention. And I really think that the journey is hinged on this. We've kind of productized this idea of a learning framework and pathways and setting that intention and really dial it in, understanding who the learners are that we're trying to create learning for. Um, and those frameworks have really created us uh, the ability to scale what we're doing and have that consistency and that efficacy um, to the programs we design. And I think it all stems from, from that really core focus of who we are and what we believe in and how we think learners should be able to learn. And then you take the expertise of knowing the modality and blend that in and, and you end up with a really strong, uh, a really strong team. Boy, well, as a former provost, I, I have to say I take great heart in what you've just said in terms of starting um, with the educational framework, um, because unfortunately, that is not what we see um, in some cases these days as people are, are jumping in um, to online, remote, and, and, and so forth. So kudos to you for, uh, for, for framing framing your work and uh, your, your company um, goals and uh, work uh, from, such a, from such a valuable perspective. Um, now, now, let me ask you, there, there have been, I'm, and I'm sure you too um, have seen the dizzying and, and somewhat confusing array of terms and verbiage used to describe this space in which you are working. And so, so for example, some of the common terms you hear every day include remote learning, distance learning, e-learning, online, digital, virtual, and on and on. Uh, how do you sort through this? What's in, and what's the difference and does it, does it really matter? Do these all talk, do these all mean the same thing or not? You know, I think the biggest thing around all of the varying terminology that we encounter is, is that, if the vocabulary is not consistent when you're working with anyone to design anything, um, there's a mismatch in what someone's expectations are for what you're doing for them. And the very first thing we try to do with all of the clients we work with is indoctrinate them to a set of vocabulary and make sure that it is fully understood what it is we're talking about. So I don't necessarily think that there's a specific universal definition for distance learning, for instance, versus remote learning. Versus, I, I honestly think people haven't settled into um, one way of describing any particular thing that's consistent. <laughs> and I think it causes great confusion. Um, you know, whether we call something a learning outcome or an objective or, you know, or a competency, there, these words just float around and have all of these different meanings to different people. And, and I think it, it does cause great confusion. Mm. Um, and like I said, I think it's very important from the outset to kind of create a working vocabulary on any given project. What is exactly the definition of, of what it is you're doing? Mm. That makes a lot of sense. So that you're all on the same page and you have the same expectations in terms of of the work you're doing together. Exactly. And I think a lot of times those things uh, are, are overlooked. The importance mm -hmm. of having a consistent vocabulary is overlooked. There's been a lot of aha moments over the years working with clients. We spend a tremendous amount of time not only doing the work, but explaining the work we're doing and making sure that it's fully understood. Mm. Um, and a lot of people just don't get what we do yeah. um, or why it matters. So I'm huge a huge fan of evangelizing uh why this work is so important well i'm also struck by the fact that some of the terminology is very off-putting and so mm. you know with faculty in particular um who may be resistant to the idea of teaching um at a distance <laughs> you know the the very use of the word teaching at a distance uh is not very it's not a very welcoming uh welcoming term or conducive for how the typical faculty member likes to think about how they engage with their students. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I totally, ha we've had that experience up close and personal over and over and over and over again. And, you know, I'm actually in the middle of drafting a blog about faculty. Um, mm -hmm. And it's the one I've labored over in a series that we're working on the most. 
because I have so many things I want to say to faculty who are in this deer in the headlights moment where they know their students need them. Some of them are terrified of this whole idea of having to be thrust into this environment right now. Distance does not sound appealing. I totally agree with you. Um, they're not sure what to do with a learning designer, even if they have one. There's a lot of fish out of water going on and just, you know, and, and the feeling of how am I going to do this on top of everything else that I'm doing? Um, and all I can say is, is let's have an open mind and let the designer guide you into the modality to make the most of it, because there's so much that you can do that leverages that space that actually can, can transform your teaching and give you a whole new perspective on how to interact with your students that you didn't know you had. It's kind of like a superpower that's that's tucked away that you, you haven't fully learned how to use yet. Sure, sure. Um, and I, I really think that that's, um, look, it's very hard to do. It's very hard to do. And a, a lot of faculty that we're working with right now are just scared. Yep. They don't necessarily have the skills and the training. Learning how to use an LMS is not really learning how to teach online. Um, there's so much more to it. And if they're paired with a great designer who can really listen to how they want to teach and how they engage with their students, that can be facilitated for them. Um, I, it's, it's a relationship that has to be fully understood. And it's, you know, if you let the designer do their job and you work with them and you brainstorm and you come with a creative spirit, we can support you in, um, in meeting your students in a whole new way and giving you a perspective you never had about how you teach. Mm, boy, there is so much you just said that I want to unpackage, <laughs> unpack. <laughs> There's several things. First, I want, I just want to um, reinforce uh, your observation about fear. And I couldn't agree more. I do think fear is a powerful um, uh, inhibitor for a lot of faculty. I think, I think especially faculty who have, um, really made their craft in terms of being in the classroom mm. in a campus-based kind of experience to give that up in this moment, if that's what they're being asked to do, um, does cause a lot of fear in terms of their own sense of relevance and where they get personal meaning from. So that's a, that is a real thing that I'm really glad you brought that up. Because yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to respond to that a little bit because I think also that the experience of the idea of you know, what's, what goes through someone's mind in that, in that role is, well, this is my course and I have this space with my students and it's, it's a private space with my students. And there's a vulnerability mm. to putting that out there and having the world be able to see into that. Right. Yep. And I think there's an IP, uh, you know, their, their, their existence is who they are, is their content, is their knowledge, is their PhD, is, you know what I mean? Yep. And when you expose all of that, it, it feels like you're trying to take some of that away. And I can't emphasize enough that a great student experience involves the faculty. It's not just content. Sticking something in an LMS without a great facilitator is just content. Content's ubiquitous. I can Google anything. It's what they bring to that to be able to use that format as a new way of publishing or a new way of having a podium that can be so powerful. And if that's not fully embraced, then they're missing it. That's, that's not what the point is. So there's so much more that's possible there, but it, it, it really involves that, that, you know, embracing vulnerability. Absolutely. Yeah. I think another point that you made um, in terms of the partnership with a, you know, a really thoughtful instructional designer or uh, resource folks who understand how to facilitate what that professor is trying to do by bringing technology and intentional design into, into the process. And um, I want to, I want to talk about that a little bit because I, I know that with the quick pivot this spring, um, I've heard from more than a few faculty and students who admitted to me that their learning experiences just weren't that good. Mm. Um, and now we have many of these schools expanding their use 
of distance online learning into the fall. And I think while students might have been willing, I know this was the case at my institution, to give us the benefit of the doubt in the spring in terms of quality, I'm not sure that's going to be the case going forward. And so there's really much more pressure and onus on our institutions to make sure that they're providing a really uh, robust quality kind of learning experience. And so um, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? What, what you consider to be the essential elements? And when you're talking about intentional design, so you have, you have folks, staff working hand in hand with faculty to create these learning experiences. Um, what, uh, from your perspective, what, what are you aiming for? What is what does a really quality experience look like? You know, this this comes back to what I just what I discussed earlier about frameworks. And to us, frameworks have two main parts. Um, there's pedagogy and technology, and it's blending those two things together and distilling the best practice for the particular learner that's in that program or that course. So first, we think about the persona of who's who's taking this course, who's in this program. And then we think about what is the best pedagogy to meet the needs and the learning outcomes for that particular learner. What is it they need? What do they want to get out of this? And how are we gonna create that for them, a pathway for them to do those things in this environment? And then what does the technology need to be to support that? And choosing those things extremely carefully and not just for one course. Students are gonna take a program and they don't want to relearn the technology or relearn the different pedagogical approaches 16 different times. That's a terrible experience. That would be like rearranging the furniture in a lecture hall and having 16 different variations of how to conduct yourself in a face-to-face -face course, which would never happen. <laughs> so there should be certain pillars that don't move to connect this so that you're taking away all the friction of that platform. And unless those things are in place, you can't get to the personality of the instructor and the great things that they want to try to accomplish. So there has to be this kind of groundwork of how are we going to do this? So for instance, you may have adult learners that are very busy trying to juggle, tucking their kids in and getting their paper written and their assignments and, and peer reviewing one another's work and all of the things that come along with, with being that kind of learner. Well, you know, maybe interweaving some live sessions where there's real connectivity and dialogue and connection and support of one another is a really important asset to keeping them coming back even though life gets in the way. So that might be a chosen pedagogy, for instance, for someone who is, um, you know, that kind of learner who needs to constantly be drawn back into this because there's so many distractions. Um, that's just one example, but when you really understand who the person is that's receiving this, who, who think about your students as customers of an experience, they really need things tailored to the way that they need to learn now more than ever. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, the interconnectedness of the experience from one course to another, the multiple times that you log in, here's a great example. Um, my partner was doing a master's program and the first uh, school, uh, you know, that, the, well, it, it basically, the path changed to and, and ended up at SNHU mostly because uh, the um, student experience there was so consistent, mm -hmm. far less friction. I won't mention who the school was that, that was abandoned in this process, but it was, you know, every time you logged in, it was, I can't find this. I can't find that. It's a totally different experience. I don't know where the resources are. I can't find the syllabus. It's, it's disjointed. And someone who's working and who has kids and who's trying to do this, you know, in a, in a world where there's so much going on, I got to tell you, focus on student experience and a really, you know, keen interest in ensuring that that that's going to be predictably good every single time. It actually matters. It matters. So you're talking about making sure there are policies in place for uh, ensuring a similar kind of user experience, if you will, 
Uh, Absolutely, that's a definite part of it. But not just from the where do I click for this, where do I click for that. That is one thing. Uh -huh. um, but just getting the the format right. I mean, we work with one school that consistently uses peer review as, mm -hmm. as a way to really keep students engaged. And they've actually claimed that it reduces um, academic integrity issues because mm -hmm. the students hold each other accountable way more than some proctoring software is going to. Mm. Um, so there's just ways of embedding practice into something that become the norm, that become an, a, a thing that you get accustomed to as far as what your experience is going to be. And if that can be persistent across all of the pro courses in a program, it becomes um, something that, that causes less friction. I guess that's the best way to say it. We call it cognitive load. Sure. Okay. Something consistently changing and you've introduced 10 different ways of doing something instead of three really great ways. You're having to readjust to that different modality over and over and over again. It's disruptive more than it's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's it's both for the student and the faculty, because if the faculty member is teaching across different uh, courses in different disciplines, you know, you for, for their benefit as well, you'd want to have some consistency in terms of how the course, how all of those things are, are structured. Um, now, now, let me push you a little bit, because this is one of, the, um, one of the points of resistance I hear from faculty sometimes uh, when they resist those mm -hmm. kinds of measures is, but I'm going to lose, my course is going to lose its individuality. I'm going to be forced into this cookie cutter kind of approach. So how do you balance as a designer? How do your staff balance um, the, uh, the freedom that faculty need to a certain extent to create learning experiences that really do incorporate their, their personalities and their, uh, with the consistent, consistency that's needed to avoid cognitive, cognitive load? What we try to do is work with a pool of faculty that are all contributing to one program, for example. They're all gonna be engaging with the same body of students as they go through this program. And we try to really look at not only the outcomes we want students to achieve, but we try to distill from them what, how they get an aha moment in their class, what that looks like, what their preferences are. And we build those opportunities kind of in a consensus kind of way into the framework to begin with. So it may not be 100%, but it's probably gonna be at least 85% there. And the compromise of that 15% is really in the best interest of the student to not have to have to, to not have to be re-indoctrinated to something new every single time. Mm -hmm. There's enough variety across a framework um, of how to present content, how to think about collaboration, how to think about assessment, where you can get pretty close to someone's comfort zone. Um, the other thing is there might need to be a little bit of embracing something that's slightly out of your comfort zone because it works better in this modality. Mm. Um, and we try to support that experimentation, that, that new learning for faculty. We create facilitation guides to actually help them get through the implementation of this. Uh, with their students successfully, lots of tips and tricks and help along the way. And nine times out of 10, and I, I really do mean this, we end up with testimonials from faculty that this has transformed the way they teach and now they don't teach the same way face to face. Yeah. We have so many testimonials that, that sound exactly that, like that. Yeah. Um, and I think those are more powerful than anything that I could say. Yeah, no, and I, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, I taught my first online course back in 1999 when the technology was really uh, pretty bad <laughs> and it was painful. <laughs> it was, it was so painful. I, I uh, committed myself to learn how to do it right. And because the technology wasn't that good, many of us who were experimenting in the space back then really had to go to the learning um, frameworks and figure out how to I mean, we were really, we really were experimenting, but I will tell you, I, I changed my way of teaching because of what I learned in the online space. And I hear that over and over again, when faculty can have a positive experience, it really does transform their entire approach to education, which is, I think, a, 
it's a it's a wonderful upside that nobody talks about you know in the in i think it's a lot it what it does i think is it drives you towards a more student-centered approach and that didactic kind of mm. lecturing dispensing knowledge kind of methodology tends to fade a little bit into the background because you have to set out intention for the whole semester and it's not just walking in with notes on a on a in a notebook and kind of letting it roll yeah when you have to think about the goals you're trying to achieve and premeditate everything that backwards design is like inevitable yep yeah yeah, no, it kind of shoots the, the sage on the stage model to to shreds, if, if you will, which I don't think is a bad thing necessarily. No, I, I mean, I think people learn from having experiences and giving learners opportunities to interact with each other, with resources, with faculty, getting feedback, that process of iterating around things. And, and that's how new knowledge is constructed. I mean, that's constructive mm -hmm. learning at its heart. Mm -hmm. So having to think about a way to structure those kinds of intentional things for students to interact with is a much different approach than um, the passive ways that normally happen in a classroom. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a freefall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Bay Path University Doctorate in Higher Education Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input and then we designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. If you've completed graduate level coursework in higher education, you may be able to complete the program in as little as three years. All coursework is online. Students receive an abundance of personalized support, both from their peers and from our expert faculty. We are now accepting applications for our October start. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. to, and it, this really relates to the, the question of equity and thinking about where we are today, where the typical institution is in trying to serve students in the remote distance, uh, the distant classroom. Um, one of the things that students sometimes complain about is the lack of interaction or engagement. And in fact, my daughter uh, was online this spring and that was her biggest complaint that her faculty were simply um, taking their lecture content and pushing it through Zoom, and it was deadly. It was very boring. Um, so as you're as you're working with faculty to uh, to structure their courses, uh, what do you can you give some specific suggestions? You know, things that you put in that facilitation manual, for example, mm. for how to create community and how to how to foster a sense of engagement and interaction in the online classroom. Look, I think it, it really is so important. The single biggest thing I will say is to try to think about what you want your students to be able to do at the end of the class and give them things to actually do and share and connect with one another around. And the idea of posting a lecture or a, even a video lecture, which we see all the time, if those things are not accompanied by meaningful ways that the student is is kind of engaged with the both the material each other and the faculty where they're producing something 
with, you know, with what you've given them. Um, that, that engagement's just going to be missing. Student-centered learning has the student doing things, actively doing things, not just receiving information, reading information, watching information. That's like passive, passive, passive. So that feeling that your daughter is having is not a surprise to me at all. Mm. I just think faculty have not been taught how to teach this way. And this is where really pairing them with a designer or coming up with alternative modes to be able to flip that stuff around. Mm. Um, because any we can literally bring any subject to life. We just need an opportunity to flip that around and say, okay, instead of listening to this lecture, how can we really have students, you know, doing something that's really meaningful and starting to construct knowledge? In fact, there's a fantastic video. Um, it's, it was a TED talk and it was, um, it's actually a few years old, um, but it is one of the best exemplars for being, and the name of it is, uh, going from knowledgeable to knowledge able. And there's a cultural anthropologist out of Kansas State University called Michael Wesch. And he, it's worth Googling. It's a fantastic illustration of engaging your students to be active learners. He did a whole experiment in his face-to-face -face class, but he leveraged the internet in a great way to make the students creators of content and and actually engage them in ways where they were they were the voice of the future and and aggregating the the information that he was providing to them in ways that really enabled them to to take control of their own learning it's fascinating and it's a, and it's it's not new this is you know he's been working in this realm for a long time but really thinking about the way media has transformed our ability think about social media we construct the news. We construct, you know, this whole vibe of what's our interpretation of what's going on. It's actually kind of run amok to some extent if you think <laughs> about it in the context of, of um, what's going on in the world. But that's the expectation students are, are coming to this, to this medium with. These are not students that just want to sit and listen. They're used to being participants. Um, everybody's got a, a device. They're armed with a device. They're on, plugged in, chiming in, having a voice, whether it's Instagram or whatever, 24-7. This generation of learners has a need that is growing in this, in this way. Mm. Um, they want to create and curate content. They want to participate. They don't want to just sit and be passive. And I think higher education... It needed a transformation. Yeah. This whole pandemic is just a catalyst, but it's really thrusting us and challenging us at rapid speed to, to transform into this. Um, I fear for the next generation of learners if we don't catch up. There's going to be like a lost generation if we don't catch up. And, and there's a huge burden on faculty right now. I mean, we've worked with some faculty who can't even, you know, get Zoom to work or can't launch a link. Mm. These students need you. Yeah. Well, and institutions have a responsibility to make sure that their faculty are prepared and trained and equipped um, to be able to be comfortable and to facilitate these kinds of experiences. I think, I, 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 you know, I fear for the faculty who are feeling the onus of this by themselves in the classroom. Um, so, and by the way, I will, I will pull up that link um, that from the TED Talk, and we'll post it in the episode notes so that people can access it because that yeah, it's so powerful. That sounds really relevant. Um, and you're you're talking about active learning best practices and embedding them in the online classroom, um, and that's I mean that makes all the sense sense in the world um, in terms of and I think that's what you're talking about in terms of those frameworks, right? In terms Absolutely. of Absolutely, yeah. So we created an accelerated model just recently to help faculty get their stuff online. You know, people came to us and said, can you put 1500 courses online by the fall? I literally had a school in the Boston area ask me that question. And I said, no, but I can enable you to do it. 
we can create a framework with you in a few weeks and we can upskill your faculty to the framework and guide them through the process of putting their own content in this method. But they need to embrace a few different ways of doing content, collaboration and assessment that are in this model of being more student centered, being a little bit you know, more consistent and if, if we can get them that far, they can we can teach them how to do the rest themselves. It's kind of a teach a man to fish kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's working great. But it's working great. That's that's that is very positive to hear. Can can you say a little bit about learning analytics um, assessment? You've talked about knowing who your students are and and so using learning analytics, having access to them, knowing how to use them is a big part of that. Uh, what, what do you advise in terms of? Yeah, uh, so we, we've actually taken a lot of the uh, process that we've created and there's a huge movement with workforce training, skills training, um, transforming. Look, I don't think the liberal arts education is by any means dead. I think students need both, but but really being able to distill certain things that are skills focused into a strictly skills focused kind of approach is really important. But every kind of learning, whether it's liberal arts based or, or very skills focused is driven by outcomes. And that means that you understand and can state exactly what someone is gonna be able to do when they're done with whatever that course is. And assessments should be built up in tiny little pieces to move the needle closer to being more proficient at doing that. And if you are creating those activities and assessments in a meaningful way where they build on one another, you should be able to use those as both opportunities for feedback where improvements can be made and people can learn from mistakes and try again and have that repetitious kind of approach around the same outcomes over and over until they're building up these capacities, right? And those are also little opportunities if those things that you're giving them to do are actually tied to learning outcomes, they're measuring sticks. And we actually built some software to help us see whether or not the intention that we set was manifesting in real time as people were going through these different exercises and doing different things that are very performance-based, by the way, not you know multiple choice. Um, this is not like multiple choice branching, but like doing real things and having rubrics that are observable and looking at how they're demonstrating the capacity to do the various things we're asking them to do. And being able to see in real time how that competency is building. Are they becoming more proficient at this? That's the kind of analytics that, that are actionable. I can say, this is where the deficiencies and skills are. This is exactly the learning outcomes that we don't have enough prerequisite knowledge for. And then I can do something about it. Mm. That to me is the kind of analytics that we need to see more of um, because it's helping us teach better. Again, like I went at this from the point of view and, and everyone on my team, you know, we're, we're educators, right? We want to teach and we want to know that it's working. If you ask me, this is this is how every K to 12 teacher operates. And I came from that world. So I, I think thinking about the aspirations you have for what you want your learners to be able to show you that they can do and then seeing whether or not that's really happening um, in a quantifiable granular way that that is meaningful. You don't see a lot of that right now. I think that's the direction we need to be moving in. Well, and again, you're, it goes right back to the heart of what you said at the beginning about intentionality, doesn't it? It does. And, and that, isn't that what teaching is? It's, it's not, you're enabling somebody to be able to do real things, not just know things, but do things. Mm. And that, I think, is where a lot of the lack of engagement is falling short. If you're teaching so that people know things, then maybe you need to be thinking differently about how you're going to get them to do things. Mm -hmm. Boy, yep, that's a powerful, very powerful concept. Um, let me switch gears here a moment, because um, another, another question I get from institutions right now is, how do we, how do we structure to to, to scale what we're doing. And institutions have a choice. They can try to go it alone, build up their own, 
internal infrastructure for things like teaching, support, course design, delivery. They can outsource. Um, and on the outsourcing end of things, as you know, there's a wide range of <laughs> possibilities. Um, they can hire a firm such as Ease Learning um, to come alongside them. Can you talk about the pros and cons of the various options that institutions might consider? If, if you're a provost sitting here right now, what, what do you need to be thinking about as you're deciding how and how, what's the best way to scale? You know, it's interesting that you say that. We're actually, I'm, I'm at right after this, this uh, interview, I'm jumping into a professional development series that we're offering right now for free on this exact topic. Mm. Um, we teamed up with a couple of other vendors, one that, uh, it, well, Inside Track and Circa Interactive are the two companies we teamed up with. And we all do different things. We build frameworks for learning design. Circa does personas and marketing and, and all of that. And Inside Track offers coaching and all these different aspects of the student experience, right? And what we wanted to get across is how do you build that internal capacity? What does it look like? Who, who do you need to be engaging with? Because everyone is thinking about how are we going to handle this? Um, and what we started with across all of us is, is that incremental framework of what's your vision for, for your online program. And there are a lot of options out there, but first understand what you want that experience to be and why are you doing it? Is it a strategic initiative? If it's a strategic initiative, you need some kind of internal capacity, even if it's just at a very high level to manage a vendor relationship but you should still be guiding that vision, right? Maybe you're strategically moving to offer more adult learning types of offerings online. Maybe it's um, a revenue generating center for the university. If it's not, maybe you're building a flex, more flexible model for an existing program that you would like to have a bigger reach with. Whatever, whatever it is, you need to understand that first. What are we doing with this? And you really have to understand um, how the interrelated parts at the university are going to support that because this is a business inside of the already existing business. The experience that you're putting out there for the students has to represent who you are. So there has to be some intention around creating this um, in a way that feels not disconnected and not like it's 200 variations of, of who you are but that there's a cohesive message around that. Um, and that can mean a bunch of different things. So, I mean, you know, you have your OPM model, you have your fee-for-service outsource model, and then you have your internal team that you can be building yourselves. Um, if I were to say that there's, you know, one more successful than another, I mean, it, quite simply, I would say, look at all the exemplars out there of who's doing this really, really well and pick apart how, how it got that way. Um, I mean, SNHU is a great example. They, I actually worked there years ago at the very beginning of when that uh, intention to spin that off from the campus experience started. And there was a very strong strategy of what it was gonna become. And SNHU online was very much going to be this separate focus area for the university and it has become everything that, that that it was intended to become they have a very solid internal team but they also outsource and we have supported them from a scalability perspective for years um, it's been a very strong partnership they know exactly what they want to be overseeing and they we have a very clear idea of how to be engaging as a vendor we're seeing more and more of those kind of models um, and i think they're very successful there's um, a lot to be said with driving that direction yourselves, um, especially from a long-term holding on to the value of the tuition. If you can create that and, and have a vendor that can support you around that, that fee-for-service model could actually be very lucrative if the team is the right team. Let me end uh, with a couple of questions. I want to ask you to pull out your crystal ball mm -hmm. and... Uh, First question is uh, your take on the future of remote learning. And you've talked a little bit about that, talking about your experience in Australia, but maybe to step back mm -hmm. and, you know, what, what do you see? What is the future um, 
in terms of remote, online, this whole world in which you are immersed? I, I think you're starting to see I think you're starting to see it. I mean, I unfortunately, I saw a, a university campus up for auction the other day online. Mm. And that brick and mortar, you know, very traditional model is, I don't think it's gonna go away completely, but it has to be reinvented. It has to be reinvented. There are better ways of using that model um, and I think that remote learning is a tremendous opportunity for some to, to actually, if we can get over some of the inequities around access, it has the potential to really bring the cost into a, a, a much more affordable place where it needs to go. Um, or we're going to have large portions of our, our, country not getting the education that they need to be able to provide the workforce that we need. It's very simple. Um, you, I don't know too many people who can afford to pay $70,000 a year for, for an education, and it's not worth it. It's not worth it. I'm a graduate of, of some very expensive universities myself, and I'm telling you, I'm advising my own children. You're crazy if you go into debt like that look for other ways to get your bachelor's degree, do it online, then go do a great master's program. Do anything, but do not go $250,000 into debt for a bachelor's, a bachelor's degree. It's, it's lunacy. Mm -hmm. um, and if we don't start getting really creative uh, around that, um, you know, we're failing the entire future of this country. Mm -hmm. So I think it needs to change. And I think the market is going to demand change. People are going to be shopping for those alternatives that pop up and they're gonna be successful. To me, the greatest achievements are emerging where the learning design is the strongest. And you're gonna see that over and over again. And I think that that student experience and the, the continuity of that, um, you know, I, I really believe that's what's going to be the selling point. And that's what people are going to consume. That's what they're going to buy. Learners are consumers. And if you look at what they're buying and where they're spending their money and the shifts that it follow, just follow that trend and you'll see. But it's not going to be um, necessarily after a name brand because what's happening is the student experience online is very much following a new round of brands that are notorious for great online learning. And SNHU got to be the behemoth that it is because their learning design is impeccable. Yeah, and that is that is the future. So you are taking us down to the wire and the very last question we ask of every guest, uh, which is what do you see ahead for higher education that we all need to be paying more attention to right now in the present? What needs to be on our radar today and why? Supporting faculty. Mm. Um, because I really think even the, the, the workload issues, all the things that have been constraints um, in, in making this transition into this modality are still problems. And if we don't figure out how to allow for those change procedures to have to take hold, the resistance is not gonna go away. Um, it's not in the best interest of students. And we really need to start thinking about how all of these pieces need to be uh, integrated and we all need to be swimming in the same direction. And more than not, when we engage, we still don't see faculty and administration and designers and everyone swimming in the same direction. And it, it is all about the students. The students need this now. And more than ever, they need it right now uh, because there isn't another way to do it right now. Mm -hmm. And just getting everybody on the same page with processes and timelines and budgets and pre-planning and getting consensus where it's not six weeks to try to transform an entire experience. I can't tell you how many times we wait until the last minute to get approval. Even if you look at the grant money, the way that it's been dispersed for the CARES Act, we, we you know we've put in proposals and it's like, all of this has to be done by May. It's like, that's impossible to do well. 
there has to be more mindfulness around both getting everyone to swim in the same direction, supporting faculty through this transition, and creating timelines and cadence, because chaos is going to just spew more chaos. All right. Well, that is a great word to end on and very, very wise. And Lori, I am so grateful for your wisdom, for the for the terrific work you're doing in this space, you are a voice um, that needs to be heard. And I'm grateful for uh, your coming on the show today. And uh, we'll look forward to continuing to help um, support the good work that you're doing going forward. Well, thank you so much for having me, Melissa. And it's been a pleasure. Solson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Join me next week for another Ingenious You conversation with educational entrepreneur Megan O'Connor. As entrepreneur in residence at Kaplan, Megan is leading the startup of an exciting new initiative called Boost. Boost was designed to address a compelling need of both students and employers gaining the necessary tangible skills to succeed in today's workforce. According to O'Connor, even graduates of the best institutions need to be able to translate their education into what employers are looking for, and colleges and universities need to do much more to help their students curate the range of experiences that they are increasingly getting from many places, not just a single institution. Subscribe now to make sure you do not miss this valuable conversation with educational entrepreneur Megan O'Connor. And as a closing note, we're winding down on season one of Ingenious You and beginning to plan for season two. If there is someone you would like to hear from in season two, or if you have suggestions for upcoming episodes, please do not hesitate to reach out. We would love to incorporate your ideas into our next season of conversation. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Be well and stay strong.